0: So turn to John chapter 2 as we continue our series through the book of John. You know, one of the things that we had to do upon arriving is to comb through the mounds of mail that the butlers had so uh, faithfully collected for us while we were gone. And as you know, this time of year, there's kind of like three piles of mail, okay? Okay. Besides the customary bills, those are always there. But you you certainly have your your graduation announcements and parties. All right. Anybody got a few of those hanging on your fridge? All right. We got we got the graduation stuff. Then of course there's the missionary support letters. All right. Those those roll in this time of year typically. And not to be forgotten, wedding invitations, right? So a lot of y'all have weddings coming up and daughters and sons getting married. And it's interesting that here in John 2. This is the first miracle, the first sign that Jesus does. And interestingly enough, it happens at a wedding. And as we're going to find out, that is is not mere coincidence. Okay, there's rhyme and reason behind this. But before we dig into the the passage, just a bit of background about Jewish weddings in the ancient Middle East, just to kind of give us a context. There's no other way to say this, guys, but But Jewish weddings just rocked, okay? Let me just say it that way, okay? Our Protestant weddings of like 20-minute ceremony, finger foods, and throw rice, lame, okay? Very lame. These guys knew how to throw a party. They threw a week, it was a week-long throwdown, celebration with a capital C. They were, it was a big deal. It was was a culmination of of what was sort of a, a long and taxing betrothal process. And we say, long and taxing. What's long and taxing about an engagement process? Well, it was when you did it the way the Jewish folks did it. You see, when a man and woman became engaged, they were already at that point sort of legally bound together. And this wasn't a time to, 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 to just plan a wedding. This was a period of betrothal where they would not live together they, they, would, they would not um, share a home together. They would not consummate the marriage. There was no honeymoon. And this does not sound like any kind of fun marriage, okay, right? But the reason is because the man, the bridegroom, he had to prove himself. He had to go out and get a job. He had to move out of his parents' basement and stop hanging on their Wi-Fi for free. Seriously, he had to build his own home. And this is interesting. He had, it was actually the responsibility of the bridegroom, the man, his family, to pay for the wedding. And let me just say, as a father of three women, I'm like, where was that day in time? Okay, please, Lord, help me. I, I want some, our daughters to marry somebody here, some man whose family can tote this bill. But nonetheless, <laughs> that's the way it happened there. Now, in our culture, if anything crazy happens at a wedding... You know, we, we tweet it. We post it on Facebook. We send it to America's Funniest Home Videos. Uh, you know, it does, it's, 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 kind of, it's kind of expected, you know, that somebody's going to faint. And there's somebody in the audience here that fainted one time at a wedding, but I'll just keep on going, all right? But not so in a Jewish wedding. You see, weddings were kind of a big deal. The stakes were pretty high. If anything happened at a wedding, it would reflect directly on the bridegroom, and it might be seen as an indication that this guy didn't have what it took, that this guy was not going to be able to do what he had promised to do. This guy was not ready, quite ready to grow up. And so it's against this backdrop that Jesus drops into this wedding. And as we're going to find that, find here, Jesus was not the life of the party, He was the life in the party. So let's stand and read this text. It's a great text. Awesome, awesome miracle, awesome sign. First 11 verses of John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. So his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the reason we're standing this morning is that we symbolically want to demonstrate what we want to be true in our hearts, that we stand under your word. You speak through your word. Your your word has authority over our lives. Or without your word, we are lost. We're just making it up as we go along. So, Lord, we, we confess our need as your people, as we say this morning, that we need you and that we need you to, to guide us, illumine us, fill us with your spirit. So Lord, may you have your way with us this morning. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Let me tell you what our plan is for us, for our time this morning. We're going to follow John's outline that he sort of gives us in this text. So John's an apostle. He wrote this book. It seems wise to kind of follow, to follow his lead on these things. But John is going to spend the first 10 verses talking about the event itself. Okay, the event. And then the last verse, John sort of gives us the punchline. He gives us the meaning or the significance of this event. And so we're going to kind of follow course. So we're going to spend our first point talking about this distinct memory that John has. Okay, we're going to talk about a distinct memory. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the deeper meaning. Okay? The distinct memory, the deeper meaning. So let's look at this memory. You know, a number of years ago, seven, eight, nine years ago, uh, Stephen Ambrose had written a book. Called Band of Brothers, and this was made into an HBO uh, TV series. It's a story of Easy Company, who are part of the 101st Airborne, um, how they made the jump into Normandy Beach on D Day and fought their way across Europe. And as good as that series is, though, one of the most fascinating aspects of it are the interviews they're doing with the men who actually did the fighting, like the flesh and blood men. And here it is 60 years later, and you would have thought what had happened to these men had happened only yesterday. The vivid detail, the the, the stories of combat and death and wounds and fright and anxiety and exhilaration and victory, it's it's just captivating. The whole thing, as you watch it, leaves you with not a shred of doubt that these men were there. These men were, were fighting. These, this did not come down secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand. This is real. And as we read John's gospel, and I've mentioned this a couple of times already, that's exactly the flavor that we get. We particularly get it in this text because there are so many details that John includes that could only come from someone who was actually there who was actually watching what was happening, who was actually by the servant's side as they, could you imagine, filling up these, these huge cisterns of, you know, with, with water, and then the master chef coming and dipping out and finding that it had been transformed into wine. See, th- this again reminds us that, that Christianity is, when we talk about biblical Christianity, biblical faith, this is not mere spirituality where we can pick and choose and sort of add what we want to, to, to gain meaning in our life. Biblical faith is real. It's based upon history. It's based upon fact. In fact, Paul says if this is not true, if there has not been a death and a resurrection of Christ, then our faith is futile. It's useless. Let's just give up now. And so we, we need to understand that John is laying these things out historically because He's moving us to a point of action. He does not want us to to remain detached from this text. He's going to tell us everything he's telling us in these first 10 verses to bring us to a decision. To say, I was there, this was true. No, what about you? I was there, this was true. This is what I did. What about you, friend? How about yourself? That's where John is taking us. And he starts right away in verse 1 and he reminds us that this is the third day. Now, Now the reason John does this, he wants to kind of lay out this timeline for us that these first seven days of Jesus's public ministry were pretty amazing. You had John the Baptist appearing on the scene, beholding, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. You have Jesus calling his first disciples. And now you have he and his disciples making the trek up to Cana to be in attendance at this wedding. All of this is happening within like a seven-day window. And at the end, we're going to talk about one of the reasons John does this. But for right now, we just need to know, as it says in verse 1, that Jesus got a wedding invitation. And that he took his disciples. Now, remember, at this point, there were probably just six disciples, Andrew, as we know, James, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John, and they journeyed up to Cana, which was about nine miles from Nazareth. Now remember, last the text last week, one of the disciples said, What good can come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was kind of like a little backwater, okay? But but Nazareth, I mean Cana made Nazareth look like a bubbling metropolis. Okay, so that, that's where we are. So if we're going to put it in Floridian parlance here, okay? Jacksonville might be Jerusalem, okay? Attach no, no distinct, you know, you know, to meaning, particularly meaning to that, they just both start with J. So if Jacksonville is Jerusalem, Gainesville would be Nazareth, because what good can come from Gainesville? Okay? <laughs> Two things I thought about, Danny Warfel and Tim Tebow sometimes, okay? And then <laughs> Melissa Smith reminded me she was from Jackson, from Gainesville. So three things, okay? Which makes Waldo Cana, right? So there, so there we go. So, so typically, these were all places together. They, they, these people knew each other. They worked together. They farmed together. They lived out in the country. They, they kind of hung out together. They were probably even related. And it says that Mary was in attendance at this. That was probably a family or, or close friend connection. Now look at verse 3. Panic sets in because the wine had run out. And we've already talked about why that might be meaningful at, at minimum, it was a social catastrophe, threatened to sort of cast a shadow over the whole spectrum of the wedding. And it's it's interesting. Mary takes it upon herself to let folks know that there's a problem that the wine has has run out, and that's probably and we don't know this for sure. It's speculation. Mary probably had some sort of hand in helping to organize and run the wedding. You know, she she, she was sort of the modern day. For, you know, the ancient version of the modern-day franc, okay, and father of the bride, or the wedding coordinator, and, and she wasn't the one who paid for it, but she's the one that tried to keep things running on schedule, and she noticed, first one to notice that they had run out of wine, and she had to figure out who to go to for help. Now, let's think about this if you're Mary for a second, okay, you've got Jesus' brothers and sisters are here, okay, you've got, you've got one set of brothers and sisters, Probably knuckleheads, okay? Can't pick up their tools in the carpenter's shed, can't sweep the sand off their back porch, you know, all those things. And then you've got Jesus, the child you conceived immaculately by the Holy Spirit. Who are you going to go to for help, right, in that context? And not, not a mystery. Now there is a good bit of debate about what is Mary actually asking Jesus to do. Is she asking Jesus to turn water into wine? Is she asking Jesus to perform a miracle? Is she asking Jesus to, to reveal himself in some dramatic way as the Messiah? Really and truly, the most likely reason is that Jesus was really wise, really good at fixing things. Remember, he was the oldest son which would have made him the provider. And while he set aside some acts, um, aspects of his divinity, such as his omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence at different points in times he was still literally the perfect child. Okay, remember when he was 12 years old in the Temple of Jerusalem debating the scribes. (laughs) They were astounded. So imagine what sort of sage advice and counsel and wisdom that Jesus as the older son, as the perfect son, and in parentheses, the son of God would bring to this. I think it was just very natural for for Mary to, to come to him with this request. Now, one thing we want to say, and I don't know what your your background is, theologically, biblically, or with church, but I think it's important to to mention this, that in Roman Catholicism, where praying to Mary is a central tenet of the faith, okay, Where, 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 where folks are taught to venerate Mary, or to pray to Mary, or to look to Mary as a mediator between us and Jesus, they will oftentimes point to this text, to say, well, you know, Jesus doesn't, doesn't really want to help, but Mary asks him, and because Mary asks him, Jesus sort of acquiesces, okay, whatever. All right, I'll 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 do something. And that because of that, we too need to navigate a path to God that goes through her. Now I think this completely misunderstands the passage. Okay? Well, go back for a second and let's look at how Jesus addresses her in verse 4. And what does he call her woman? Now men, don't try this at home, okay? Do not try this at home. It's actually it's 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 another it's a, the word for woman, it, it's not it's it's not a it's not a scathing term, it's not a it's you know, it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's like kind of like calling someone ma'am, but it's certainly not a familiar term. It's not a term of endearment in the Greek. It kind of denotes this idea of some sort of formalized dis- distance here. In other words, Jesus is gently rebuking Mary. He's saying, "Mary, ma'am, what what, what does this have to do with me?" It literally, what do you and I have in common as it relates to this issue? It's, it's kind of in modern day vernacular that's sort of your business, and I have my business, and our business ventures here don't jive. (laughs) They don't don't mesh. Then he says something interesting. Now go back to the text for a second. Verse four. He says, my hour has not yet come. This is, this is the reasoning behind why his, he's saying that his agenda and Mary's agenda are different. Now, that term, my hour has not yet come, we find it repeatedly through the Gospel of John. Oftentimes, people will say, you know, remember, Andrew and James were asking, Jesus, bring down the thunder on this village. He says, my hour's not yet come. Jesus, reveal yourself. My hour's not yet come. It was not until the day before he was crucified and he was visiting with the Gentiles that he said, now my hour has come. See, this is, this is the way that Jesus would refer to his imminent death. From the day that Jesus proclaimed himself in his public ministry, he is on a one-way street with a one-way ticket to Jerusalem, and he is coming there to die. Jesus says, that's my overarching purpose for why I've come. I am I am purposeful moving towards my death and he knows Jesus knows that once he reveals himself publicly dramatically the clock starts ticking. See the the, the, the timeline is inaugurated. And this is Jesus's way of saying Mary Mary my my timing and my agenda are far Different than your timing and your agenda. See, Mary, for you, the wine has run out, and that is an urgent need. You have this wedding in view. But, Mary, let me tell you something. I've got the whole world in view. I've, come, I've got to come and die for the sins of the world. And, and I'm no longer operating with you on familiar terms of mother and son. I now come to do whose bidding? My Father's bidding. And that's what we find repeatedly in the Gospel of John. I've come to do not my will, but His will. From this point forward, Mary, everything is going to be subordinated to the divine mission. Now, we can imagine being in Mary's spot. you got to feel for Mary. He's like, that's all well and good, Jesus. But right here, Right now, today, we are out of wine, okay? So thank you very much, okay? What are you going to do? And guys, the reason we identify with Mary is that so many of us, that we've run out of wine in our marriage. We've run out of wine in our relationships. The cistern is dry when it comes to our career and finances. We're straining to see the purposes of God, the agenda of God, but all we can see is this empty cistern, and we're like, Jesus, come and help us. Now, here, here, it, it, now when we look at the way Jesus responds to Mary, I, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to say the way Jesus responds is just brilliant, okay, which you would expect okay, from Jesus. It is brilliant, but it reveals something of his heart that he responds to Mary in a way that both signifies her worth, her dignity, where she's coming from, okay, her heart. You need to know this morning that if, if, if you are just burdened and, you, and, you, and, and you've just been pouring out your prayers and requests and confessions and laments to the Lord this season, he hears you, he loves you, he's concerned for you, he is responding to you. But yet, as we shall see, in his way, in his timing, with his overarching purposes in mind, and that's exactly what Jesus does. Let's look at the text. Verse 6. He says, There are six stone jars that are used for purification. So, in ancient Judaism, part of the, the ceremon- being ceremonially clean was this idea that you had to wash your hands before meals. Okay? You had to wash the utensils that you ate and cooked with. And it was this idea that you were sort of symbolically cleansed. And so Jesus says, take these jars and I want you to fill them to the brim with water. I don't want to leave any doubt here, seems to be the case. I don't want you to think that I poured a little bit of water, then a little something, something, and then we kind of came up with this. No, 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 no. Okay, they're empty, and I say, fill them to the brim. In verses, And then in the most, under, the most understated like, transition in, in literary history, look at verses 7 and 8. Somewhere between verses 7 and 8, something amazing happens. Okay, Water is turned into wine. And this is not any kind of wine, okay? This is not this is not Knott's Berry Farm, okay? This is this is Napa Valley. Okay? This is uh Chateau Depot, okay? If you're a, if you're a wine drinker, I hear, okay? Anyway, <laughs> this wine is 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 unreal. Now, now let me say something as a disclaimer. Let me be clear about something. The purpose of this passage, the reason John gave us this passage is not to resolve our debates about alcohol consumption. That is not the point. That is not the point. You know, well, some would say, well, this was this this was watered down wine, or or this wine that was, or this water that was changed to wine was non-fermented, okay? Meaning it was like really awesome grape juice. Let me tell you what that steward would have done if he had tasted really awesome grape juice. (laughs) Is what he would have done. Guys, this is this is just take the text for what it's worth. The reaction of the steward tells us everything. I was expecting, you know, two ninety nine bottle of wine. You're serving the very best because see in that in that in that culture you would you would bring the worst wine out later. Why? Why? Because people would have been drinking the good wine, and by day three they would not have known the difference. Okay, that, that that's that's essentially what it is. So there, there, there's no doubt here, okay, what's, what's being served. And while I say it's not the main point, I do want to just give one, like, quick application, implication to this. Because Jesus is not obtuse to the material world, to the physical world, your physical needs. You know, a lot of times we like to say, you know, there's kind of two areas of my life. There's my spiritual area, that's community group, That's my tithe, that's coming to church, that's that's my Bible study, that's my personal devotions, and then I've got the rest of my life. I've got my job, I've got my career, I've got my money, I've got my recreation, my hobbies, my sports, and they kind of, the two shall never meet. And Jesus says, no, 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 I care about it all. See, Jesus, by his presence there, is giving sanction to, to marriage. It's a good thing. He's given sanction to to wine, to food, to feasting, to celebration. Can we misuse all of those things? Absolutely, and make them idols. But it's interesting that Jesus says, when I come back, I'm not obliterating the earth as much as I'm making it new. There is a new heaven and a new earth with a new body, we will eat and drink and be in relationship. And you've heard me say this before, that's all of of an apologetic to kind of just say, you know what? When Jesus looks at your whole life, he doesn't just care about who you are here. He cares about who you are wherever you are. You see, your, your fatherhood, your parenting, your working, your motherhood, your recreation, your sports, it's all done to God's glory. All of it belongs to Jesus. He says, it belongs to me and I created it and it's good as long as you bring it in submission under me. So while that's not the main point, it's a a really important implication. So how does Jesus respond? He responds, and this is just amazing, in a way to, he responds to Mary's request, yet in a way that preserves and advances his larger purposes and timing. Mary, I love you but I'm going to do something that's going to completely blow your mind. I'm, I'm going to do something you're not even expecting. You're wanting me to, like, get some more wine shipped up from Nazareth, okay? Mary, Mary, I've got a bigger agenda than that. And that agenda is this. now it's time, not for the world, but for you and my brothers and sisters and for my disciples. I'm about to reveal my glory. And I'm going to reveal my glory so that you might believe. Look at verse 11. Here we are in the deeper meaning of this text. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested or revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, theologians like to talk about this sign of the the wedding feast at Cana being the first of seven signs And that that comprise the time leading up to Jesus's crucifixion. And that is through these seven signs, through these great miraculous works, that Jesus, in fact, reveals himself to be the Son of God. And this is important because these are not miracles or signs that Jesus is doing just to do. This is not like entertainment. Now, I don't know if you read this, but Barnum and Bailey had their last circus act, Okay. And nobody cares. Like I can, argue. you telling your faces you don't care? But what do you do after you pay your money to see a show at the circus? What do you do after the show? I'll give you a hint. You go home. Okay, you, that's it. You go home. It's like you, you you have your memories. You post it on Facebook. It's awesome. But that's kind of it. Jesus says that's not what was to happen after a sign happened, after a miracle was done. It was meant to move people towards a decision point. Guys, by the way, this is why John repeatedly, I mean, Jesus repeatedly in the book of John, refuses to do signs at different points. The Pharisees are wanting him to call down fire, and he says, I'm not going to do it, because all you guys want is a show. And remember, they had already been ascribing his miracles to Beelzebub. It's like, what difference is it going to make if I bring fire down from heaven? You don't, you you just want a show. You want a circus act. You want something to, to advance your own agenda. You don't want life. You see, what John is telling us here is that when Jesus did these signs, it was, and I like this term, it was meant to breed faith in you and me. It was meant to reveal his glory to us. It was, it w- they were meant to call us to a response To say, you know what? Only the Son of God could do this. And because of that, I'm not going to remain detached. It's not going to be just simply something I affirm intellectually or read about in the history book. No, no, no. I'm actually going to entrust myself to this man. Don't know where you are spiritually this morning or what your background is, but I can tell you this John the Apostle wrote this story. From his distinct memory 2,000 years ago, so that on this day today, I'm going to get the date wrong, but I think it's May 21st, 2017, that you can hear this and you can respond. That you can say, Whoa, only the Son of God could do such a thing. I have seen his glory, and now I believe and I trust. In him. You see, it's not coincidence that Jesus works his very first miracle at a wedding. So, we think about a wedding, what do we think about? Life and celebration and and joy, this new physical life that is coming together. And Jesus has done that. He has made new life. Where, Where life was none, physical life was none in this water, He has made it alive. But more importantly, John is telling us that the Word became flesh isn't just creating physical life. He's creating spiritual life. You see, these these cisterns, which were were based upon Judaic customs of ceremonial cleansing. See, when, when, when people washed in these waters, they knew these waters aren't taking away my guilt. These waters aren't taking away my sin. These waters aren't clearing my conscience. I need something else to do that. That's why John the Baptist says, I come baptizing with water, but yet, what? He comes baptizing with the Holy Spirit. See, John is communicating something deep and powerful to us. That the water of our cisterns, for oaks, the dead water of Old Testament ceremony and obedience to the law can never do what we want it to do. It can never make us whole. It can never clear our conscience. And and, and we as Americans are very creative at what we fill up our cisterns with, aren't we? We're very creative in in trying to pour all sorts of things into those stone cisterns. It's going to be my kids. My kids are going to be what defines my meaning in life. or or my health, or my job, or my hobbies, or my career. I'm going to pour anything I can in there to derive life. But you know what? It just never works, does it? It never works. We are futilely attempting to grip from these cisterns things they were never intended to give. And Jesus says, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to bring life into those cisterns. See, wine was a sign of life. Wine was a sign of celebration and joy and being alive. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus, at the Last Supper, when he points to the symbol of life, what does he point to? The wine. This is my blood. This is what brings you life. Isn't it interesting that John, who also wrote, first, second, and third John, also wrote the book of Revelation? What is John's most popular metaphor that he uses to communicate the union of Jesus and his people? What is the most popular metaphor? The wedding feast of the Lamb. You see, Jesus invites us into this table this morning. But this table has a deeper meaning. And here's the deeper meaning. What Jesus has filled up our cisterns with is simply no less than himself. You see, Jesus is our new wine. Jesus is what gives us life. Jesus is what changes hearts. And John says, I'm proclaiming it to you. I was there so that you too might believe. And what does it say his disciples do? They believed. They continue to follow after him. Not just for the next day, the next week, or the next month, but what? The rest of their lives. These six, along with five others, are there to the very end. And John is there 60 years later as an old man writing this and saying, I still believe. I still believe. I invite you too to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's why we do the Lord's Supper every week. We don't think we ever get past this. We we, we come weekly celebrating the new wine of Jesus Christ given so that you and I might have life. I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward to prepare to serve the Lord's table today. And as they do, I'm going to ask you to go before him and prepare your hearts to come to the table.